Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. Hey everybody, welcome back to Quarantine Seminary. Today we are going to be continuing into Jacob chapter 3 with Jacob's temple discourse. If you haven't listened to the previous episode, it's fine, but just know that we are picking up halfway through this temple discourse and you might miss some references. We'll begin with verses 1 through 4. From the beginning of Jacob's talk, he has lamented having to call out the Nephite men for their gross mistreatment of others, particularly women and the poor among them. He calls those who have been mistreated and marginalized the pure in heart and the broken in heart. In chapter 2, he says that it burdens his soul to have to enlarge the already existing wounds of these people rather than consoling them. There's a lot that we don't know about Nephite society, but it's very likely that the pure in heart needed to hear their wounds acknowledged and validated in public by their priest, Jacob. Clearly, we are all under obligation to treat each other well, but particularly when you've been mistreated by someone who should be caring and when everyone else just acts like it's business as usual, it can seem like you might be the one who is broken. There's something built into Jacob's discourse where he is almost saying, we aren't moving the standard here just because all of these men think they've found a justification in scripture or in their wealth. With this as our backdrop, Jacob begins chapter 3 by shifting from calling the men to repentance and addressing the pure in heart with these beautiful words. Look unto God with firmness of mind, he says, and pray unto him with exceeding faith, and he will console you in your afflictions, and he will plead your cause, and send down justice upon those who seek your destruction. O all ye that are pure in heart, lift up your heads and receive the pleasing word of God, and feast upon his love, for ye may, if your minds are firm forever. I'll probably do more of a free-flowing episode on the idea of a firm mind, But setting that aside, I see Jacob trying to reaffirm the family here. Just before this, at the end of chapter 2, Jacob tells the men, Ye have broken the hearts of your tender wives, and lost the confidence of your children, because of your bad examples before them, and the sobbing of their hearts ascend up to God against you, and because of the strictness of the word of God, which cometh down against you, many hearts died, pierced with deep wounds. Broken hearts, lost confidence, hearts that have died. Family is a bedrock of how we make meaning out of our world. My boys are young and our family is their whole reality. What would be the cost of me breaking their hearts and losing their confidence? What else might they begin to question or doubt? Today we might call this trauma, but Jacob calls it a heart that has died. Let's go back to his words to the pure in heart. If you don't let this shake you and you continue to look to God, he seems to be saying, he will fill that gap in your family that has been left by these sins. He will console you. He will plead your cause. He will bring justice. Don't give up on everything else because of the horrible actions against you. God has you. That's the covenant. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think that gets to the heart of his words. It's very likely that some of you have experienced similar heartache in family or in other relationships. 
It could be betrayal or loss or a sense of isolation. What has been helpful for you to remember about your relationship to Christ as you tried to grapple with these relationships? How have you seen Christ deliver on the promises that Jacob gives in verses 1 and 2? After speaking to the pure in heart, he immediately shifts by calling the men to repentance again, and he brings in the example of the Lamanites. Now, he mentioned the Lamanites in chapter 2, but he's really going to make the point of comparison. Remember that the Nephites, and I imagine that the Nephite men in particular, have a lot of beliefs about how much more righteous they are than the Lamanites. There's even perhaps this racist tradition to it, depending on how you interpret some of the descriptions of the Lamanites. But one word that keeps on popping up is filthy. I just listened to this Maxwell Institute podcast episode with Sharon Harris, where she was previewing her forthcoming book on Enos, Jerem, and Omni with the Maxwell Institute's Brief Theological Introduction series. As a side note, I absolutely recommend you look into that series. Each author really does a great job making the Book of Mormon sing. Anyways, Harris is an English professor at BYU, and she talked about this word filthy, tracing it back to Nephi's vision of the Tree of Life and the river of filthy water, and she makes this compelling case that rivers have already been associated with Laman symbolically. Think the river of Laman in the valley of Lemuel, and that almost immediately Nephi saw that filthy river as being connected to how the Lamanites will treat the Nephites going forward. It's a brilliant reading. So returning to Jacob, Jacob uses this word filthy, but he makes the point that those who aren't pure in heart, in other words, the Nephite men who he's calling to repentance, are the ones who are filthy. In fact, he says that unless they repent, the land is cursed, a concept that Nephites associated with the Lamanites. The Lamanites, he says, and I'm paraphrasing again here, are not filthy like unto you, even if they are cursed. And the time speedily cometh that except ye repent, they shall possess the land of your inheritance, and the Lord God will lead away the righteous out from among you. This actually happens when the first Mosiah leads the righteous to Zarahemla and the Lamanites take over the land of Nephi. Moving on to verses 5 through 14, in this section, Jacob doesn't let up. We can call it pride, I've called it priestcraft, whatever it is, it's clear that elevating yourself above others in one area of your life will impact other areas. What that looks like for Nephite men is that in addition to having a sense of superiority based on their wealth or gender, they also have a sense of racial and religious superiority. Let's take a second and remind ourselves of the principle of truth that Jacob shared to contradict the idea that we are justified in elevating ourselves above others. In chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Do ye not suppose that such things are abominable unto him who created all flesh? And the one being is precious in his sight as the other, and all flesh is of the dust, and for the selfsame end hath he created them, that they should keep his commandments and glorify him forever. We aren't authorized to repurpose members of God's family, even if our culture justifies us in doing so. Jacob talks about the hatred that the Nephite men have of the Lamanites, 
because of the, quote, filthiness and the cursing which has come upon their skins. I should point out here that no matter what beliefs the Nephites had about the associations between righteousness and skin color, our modern-day church leaders have affirmed time and time again that we don't believe that skin color is in any way associated with divine displeasure. To be honest, I don't even think that Jacob is affirming that belief here. I think that what he is doing is reflecting the narrative of Nephite superiority back onto these men in order to reveal their prejudice and make his next point, which is that, quote, the Lamanites are more righteous than you, for they have not forgotten the commandments of the Lord which was given unto our fathers, that they should have, save it were, one wife, and concubines they should have none, and there should not be whoredoms committed among them. He's certainly not excusing the Lamanites here of any of their sins, but on the things that matter the most, their treatment of their families, they are the superior ones. Quote, because of this observance and keeping this commandment, he says, the Lord will not destroy them, but will be merciful unto them, and one day they shall become a blessed people. With a little play on words, Jacob then reveals the urgent need to repent. If the Nephite men care so much about their skins, again, this word has been interpreted a number of different ways, they'll know their own skins to be truly filthy at Judgment Day. There are some valid arguments for saying that skin doesn't refer to the actual skin color, but there's also real relevancy if we take it at face value. To put Jacob in my own words, quote, you men think you are literally covered by your sense of superiority, whether racial or religious, but you'll one day see that you're actually covered in filth, and there will be no justifying your way out of it. Wake up, he says, hearkening back to Isaiah, quote, awake from the slumber of death and loose yourself from the pains of hell, that ye may not become angels to the devil, to be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, which is the second death. As we can see, the struggles of humanity may change shape over time, but they keep their essence. What form might these struggles take in our day, in the church, in our lives? Is there a warning in there for us? If there is, what does it mean for us to wake up? In the book of John, Jesus says, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Are we sleeping through the life that Jesus is offering us because we are trying to repurpose it in some way, whether through materialism or discrimination or prejudice of some kind? Now that's it. That's what we get from Jacob's temple discourse. It's incredibly relevant. He makes one final note that he hasn't even come close to recording all of his teachings or the history of the people. Other Book of Mormon authors make the same point. It should be a reminder to us when we are reading the Book of Mormon, that it is undiscovered country. Those things which seem most familiar to us can also become the most opaque, because we stop being curious. Anyone who has tried to write history knows that the author is really shaping the story by what they choose to include and not include. Scripture is clearly very similar. That in and of itself isn't a reason to suspect the motives of the author, but it is a reason to see that these are human records at the same time as being divine records, and that we are human readers. So let's stay curious. Thanks for tuning in to our walkthrough of Jacob 3. 
I hope you found some new insights along the way. As always, I'm open to feedback. This is a work in progress, and I want it to be of value to people. We'll talk to you next time where we'll, we will get into Jacob 4, which is the introduction to the allegory of the olive trees. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.